what it is that makes surf music go so well with monster movies, but I'm so glad that it does. We're kicking off episode 138 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Ancient Graves. It's from the album Enjoy the Hip Slick, Ultra Violent, and Super Sexy Surf Sound of the Beeritz Boys. It's from the Beeritz Boys. It appears on this episode of Monster Kid Radio with their permission. So big thanks to them. Look them up at thebeeritzboys.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. That's our website. This is our podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. And on this show, we've got somebody who loves giant monster movies, atomic monster movies. He's a writer by the name of Frank Schildener. And we're going to get to that here in a second because I need to tell you who I am. I'm your host, writer-producer Derek M. Cook. And I want to welcome you to the show and thank you for downloading the podcast and for being a Monster Kid Radio listener. I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're a first-time listener, I hope you enjoy what you find here. If you're a long-time listener, thanks for sticking with us for as long as you have. Monster Kid Radio has some of the best podcast listeners out there. You guys and gals rock. So monsterkidradio.net is where you can find links to everything that we've got going on here at Monster Kid Radio. You can find a link to every band that's ever appeared here on the show by clicking on the songs button up there at the top of the page. You can click on Live 365, and that's going to take you to our internet radio station where you can hear music, soundtracks, scores, trailers, all kinds of things from classic monster movies from the 30s through the 60s with the occasional bit of matinee or Ed Wood or something thrown in there, as long as it's all reminiscent of the classic monster movies that we love so much here. You can find a link to our Facebook group where conversations are happening between listeners, between episodes, and you can find our contact information. Click on that. You're going to find our email address. It's monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And you'll find our voicemail number. Our phone number is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Stick around to the end of the show because we're going to be going over some feedback that did come in either by voicemail or email. That's at the end of the show. Stay tuned. You'll also find a link to our Patreon page. This is where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio and help support the show. If you are a patron of the show, well, there are certain rewards you can get. Newsletter, special podcast, special shout-outs, all sorts of things. Check that out or go straight to patreon.com slash monsterkidradio. No matter how you support us, even just by downloading the show, I appreciate everything that you do for us here. One of the reasons why I launched Monster Kid Radio is that I wanted to celebrate my love for these kinds of movies and find other people who enjoy them as well. Finding my tribe, finding my people. You guys and gals are my people, and so is Frank Schildener. Now, Frank is a writer. He primarily works in the field of new pulp. Well, he's going to tell us a little bit about that, but the reason I'm having him on the show is because there is a short story recently released for e-readers called Big Ol' Scorpion. Can you guess what it's about? Well, if you can't, keep your ears open for the chat that I've got coming up with Frank here coming up shortly. He's going to tell us all about the story, his background, how he got started, what he's into, that sort of thing, and... Yeah, he's one of us. I think you're going to want to stick around for that. After that is part one of our October long tribute to one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. One of our slogans is Monster Kid Radio is where Karloff is king, Bella Lugosi lives, and John Agar rules. Well, Lugosi is one of our patron saints here. So this year, this October, this Halloween, we are celebrating Bella Lugosi. I am launching a segment called Countdown to Lugosi Ween. 
It's less about the facts and the filmography and more about my experiences with Bela Lugosi. I hope you'll stick around for that, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I've been enjoying exploring my own history with the works of Bela Lugosi. We're going to get to that. Of course, that'll be after the conversation with Frank, and we're going to get to all of that right after this. In each fortnight to the IndyCast, the world's number one Indiana Jones fan podcast. Trust me. Featuring the latest news, reviews, and interviews with on-screen and behind-the-scenes talent who help bring to life the greatest adventure movie series ever made. Each episode has the latest from the world of Indiana Jones, as well as interactive segments, trivia, contests, and specials, including radio dramas and music retrospectives. The IndyCast. It's a transmitter. It's a radio for speaking to God. Available in iTunes or listen directly at theindycast.com. If adventure has a name, it must be the IndyCast. considerably larger, about ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there's no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision, shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. believe in the power of darkness that's a superstition now there you are wrong the power of darkness is more than just a superstition it is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night why on one night of one year should these people live in mortal fear
goat of Mendes. The devil himself. Christopher Lee as Doricia, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. My God. Don't look at the eyes, Rex! Eyes. Eyes. Once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. The devil rides out from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's famous novel fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. Oh, you think quickly! Back to back! Join hands! You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. If we once catch sight of his face... I love my classic monster movies, my classic sci-fi and horror, but I also love what's been called New Pulp. And the guest that I have on Monster Kid Radio today, most of his work is in the world of New Pulp, but he just recently released a short story that's firmly in the wheelhouse of Monster Kid Radio. I'd like to welcome to the show Frank Childener. How's it going, Frank? Awesome, Derek. Great to finally meet you. Love your stuff. I love Monster Kid Radio. I'm good then. Thanks a lot for... No, I'm just... <laughs> <laughs> you got me. You got me. It's a Sunday morning, so the brain is definitely not 100% how you do that. <laughs> I'm doing good, man. This is great. I'm thankful that you took the time to do this. It was kind of a short notice thing, but I think uh, the listeners are going to appreciate it as much as they're going to appreciate the short story. Before we get to Big Old Scorpion, though, I want to definitely talk a little bit about your background as a writer. How long have you been writing? Uh, well, I tried to write for about 40 years now. I'm 48. But I didn't actually become published until eight years ago, thanks to two people. Uh, Win Scott Eckerd, who gave me a lot of chances. One is one of the most best and loyal friends you could ever meet. And Jean-Marc Lofsier, who owns and runs Black Coat Press. They gave me chances, and I got published in John marks yearling book, uh, it's called Tales of the Shadowman, where you take a French hero and you write him with another character, and it comes out every year and has such amazing writers in it. I was so happy I got in it. I got to be in a series with people like Michael Moorcock and Brian Stableford, you know, guys, really luminaries. And because of that, I then got shots at writing for Airship 27, which is uh, Ron Fortier's publishing house and i've been a new pulp writer since then pretty fortunate person for the last eight years now i mentioned new pulp at the beginning of this you just mentioned the term for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with what is being called new pulp how would you define it well i think new pulp is a return to the enjoyable thrilling tales of the past these days most Novels and stuff are, are very dark. There's a lot of, you know, characters are really aren't particularly heroic and heroic characters are viewed in a very negative context by a lot of people. New Pulp is kind of a return to 
the old where the characters can be heroic and where people are able to try to write the enjoyable stories that we grew up with, the, the old days. And I absolutely love to write it and I love to read it too because there's so many amazing writers out there right now. The, the uh, New Pulp Revolution, as the people call it, uh, is really, in a way, it's a return to the old, but it's losing the bad parts of the uh, of pulp and old writing, you know, trying to lose things like the inherent racism that was available in those books, the sexism, things like that. But it does give you these amazing stories of terrible villains and great heroic heroes, and there's just a growing number of these writers that I just admire and get to read and I get to write now. So um, I'm a pretty lucky guy. A lot of New Pulp uses public domain characters from the past, characters that have slipped maybe under the radar or, or have slipped out of copyright. What are some of the public domain characters you've had the opportunity to write? I really got lucky with this. When Ron Fortier first asked me to write some New Pulp, he offered me a character called Secret Agent X. Now, Secret Agent X is known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. He's a, obviously a secret agent character who has these amazing skills at disguising himself. And it's even suggested that the great Lon Chaney was his teacher. So I absolutely love that character, and that's the one he got to offer me. So I got to write him. Then after that, he offered me a chance to write the Black Bat who, if, I don't know if readers know of him, uh, listeners, but the Black Bat was created at the exact same time as Batman. <clears throat> there was even a lawsuit between these companies, and so they realized it was just pure chance. The Black Bat is a character who is blind, but at night can see, and he spends his times with two forty-five automatics fighting evil. And I got to write a backup character called Ravenwood, the stepson of Mystery, who is a mystic hero. A lot of fun I had there. I made a very Lovecraftian story. Thanks to Tommy Hancock, I've written a few non-public domain characters like Richard Knight, who is an air hero, and Thunder Jim Wade, who I recently got to publish, who's a Doc Savage clone. It's an amazing ride to get to write these characters, i got to tell you. You just hit the checklist of everything I'm interested in. <laughs> <laughs> Lovecraftian. They're all out there. Oh, yeah. You read a lot of this growing up, I'm assuming. You've got some experience reading the original Pulps. I do, and that's thanks to Philip Jose Farmer. He wrote a book called uh, Doc Savage's Apocalyptic Life and another one called Tarzan Alive that are biographies of these characters as if they're real people. And I had never heard of them, but I had been reading the modern pulp of the period, The Executioner by Don Pendleton, the Destroyer by Warren Murphy, uh, even the craziest, most ridiculous of them all, a character called the Death Merchant, who was just the most ridiculously silly character ever created in fiction. A friend of mine just saw this and said, why don't you read the good stuff instead of this dreck? Though Don Pendleton really was a good writer, so I can't say it. So was Warren Murphy. And I read this, and it's like I op this opened up a whole vista the Shadow, to me, before I read this book, was just a character from the radio I used to listen to. I love the Shadow radio show. I read this, and I, all of a sudden, I had to find these. So I started finding reprints, and I only found a few, Secret Agent X being the one. So he became my real favorite, along with a character called uh, Operator Number 5, who's another Secret Agent character, who 
in one of his series of stories, the United States is actually conquered and he's, he's leading the resistance to save the United States from, well, the Germans and the Japanese, though they gave them other names. So I got to read some of the best stories back of that period. And I started collecting Doc Savage, well, the Bantam editions, which I had until a flood decided to take away all my pulps. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you know what? It, that's the way life works. you got to take a philosophy of, hey, I had a great year, great years with it, and I will find new ones one day. That's how you got to view it. There you go. There you go. Yeah, so I'm a lucky guy, as I keep telling you. I'm really happy with this, and I really got to thank the guys who keep giving me chances to write more of this. You mentioned Black Coat Press as being one of the the companies. There's also Pro Se Productions and Airship 27. These are the houses that are doing the new pulp now, right? They are, but there are others. Uh, White Rocket does some really great stuff. Uh, Alan Plexico. He actually gave Ron, myself, Jim Beard, and Ian Watson a chance to write the heroes from Last of the Mohegans. And that book is now called Pride of the Mohegans. And talk about a chance to really relive your childhood, writing the characters from both the movie and the book, Last of the Mohegans. Uh, he gave that chance to all of us, and it's just a really spectacular book. There are a bunch of other smaller presses, but those are the big ones I'm seeing right now. I work a lot with Airship 27, Pro Se, and Black Coat Press, so it's a real pleasure because all of the guys who write run those really know the, the world and know how to bring out the best in a writer so uh, I've learned a lot thanks to them I gotta give them each a bit of credit oh one more would be Moonstone Moonstone does a lot of a lot of powerful stuff they've done the Avenger I wrote one story for them they've done uh, the Green Hornet and the Phantom so they're pretty up there too you mentioned things like the Green Hornet or the Shadow or the Phantom I think these are more well-known on the pop culture side of things because of the films that have come out over the past 20 years or so. Are there other characters from Pulp's history that you wish had made it to the big screen or maybe are more well-known? You know, I would love to see Secret Agent X, and Ron actually told me uh, a way that Secret Agent X could be a great TV show, like an HBO show, but I'll leave that. I'd leave that to him. I really, it was his entirely his idea, even though I love writing Secret Agent X. I really want to leave it to him so he can one day try and get it going because he, what an idea. It just blew me away. It could fit an HBO TV show perfectly the way he has an idea here. Secret Agent X would be great. The Spider, who is one of the craziest characters of them all, a real psychotic uh, fighting evil, would be a great character to have on screen because it's very visceral and very visual. And Operator Number 5 would be the ultimate American James Bond kind of story, especially this series that I mentioned earlier called the Purple Empire series, where the United States, it starts with the United States under 220, I think, three days of rule from another country that took over the United States. I mean, it opens with that. So can you imagine what an amazing series that would be? Just wow. spectacular stuff. So those are the characters I've always thought would be the most visual and the ones that non-Pulp fans could accept so easily. You know, you have to really think in terms of how to present it. I mean, the best people that have done that for non-fans are Marvel Comics, their movie series. 
they proved that space opera is not dead this summer with Guardians of the Galaxy. My wife has zero interest in space opera, but she had a genuine, enjoyable time at that movie. Captain America 3, uh, 2, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, showed that 60s <laughs> spy stories still work really well. And if you had taken out the costumes, it might may well have been characters from the 60s doing those adventure stories like well, Robert Redford did one as the Condor. So, you know, there is a lot out there. It's just trying to get people to see it. Oh, sure. I think a lot of the modern comic stuff now owes a lot to these old pulps and a lot of it's been available now as reprints. There's new stuff coming with the new pulp movement with you and Ron Fortier and Van Allen Plexico and a number of other people. My cat's sitting on my Kindle right now, so I can't go through the list, but I've got a ton of new pulp on my Kindle because I love reading this stuff. Of course, I love the classic monster stuff and giant monsters. So when I saw big old scorpion come out, I had to jump on that. And it's clear you've got a love for this stuff as well. Oh, certainly. I didn't really meet the monster world through the usual route, which is like Frankenstein and Universal series. I saw Godzilla first. (laughs) There are worse things to start with. (laughs) Oh, I know. Believe me. King Kong and Godzilla, I saw them both on the same day. My dad sat me down. I must have been probably four. He sat me down in front of this TV, probably just wanted to get me out of his hair for that day, or whatever it was. And I got to see, first was the original Godzilla movie, and then it followed King Kong versus Godzilla. And I was hooked for life. Wow. And I, I, got, I had a really lucky childhood that way. My parents loved old movies, and they loved the old sci-fi classics, so I got to see these. And so to me, the Atomic Era movies were the first things I saw. I didn't see the Universal Frankenstein monster movies until I was about seven or eight when a library during a spring break period showed us all of them in a row. Over the course of this whole like week, every day a whole bunch of us came and lay down on our backs on the hardwood floor and watched one Frankenstein movie after another. So it took a long time for me actually to understand the Frankenstein series was separate movies and not one big story. You said that you didn't know if your dad just wanted you to get out of his hair or whatever, but to me, sitting you down to watch these movies, that's a parroting win. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, it right, so. he always thought so because one of the things I live, I grew up in New Jersey and every Thanksgiving time, the Channel 9 would show these movies again and I would always watch them. And that is, you say, four to six hours where I wasn't bothering my parents before the dinner. There you so go. To them, they were like, this was like godsend because they knew, they, they knew King Kong, King Kong versus Godzilla and whatever Godzilla movie they threw in after that. The kids are locked away. They don't have to be bothering with this. King Kong is a babysitter. I like it. Yeah, King <laughs> Kong is my babysitter. Uh, I, I always used to get mad there was no third King Kong versus Godzilla because I considered the first King Kong movie the first movie, of course. Mm-hmm. That's how my brain worked. You said a second ago something about the Frankenstein series not really being a series. What do you mean by that? Well, when you sit down and you're about seven or eight, and you watch these movies one after another, your brain really doesn't accept the titles of the stories. It's just, you know, the, the whole title sequence, while it's being played in front of you, you, you don't really realize that, that it's, you know, Son of Frankenstein, Ghost of Frankenstein, and so on. So if you're not paying attention to the titles, 
you really start watching this as one big long story oh, okay. involving the Frankenstein family, you know, the Wolfman and all of these characters, and they and it becomes almost a big saga to you. And for years, I couldn't remember. If somebody told me Son of Frankenstein, I'd have to ask, is that the one with Basil Rathbone, or is that the one where where Lon Chaney Jr. played the monster? And they'd have to explain to me, oh, that's that one. Okay, because my brain didn't really think of it as one uh, as separate movies. I thought of it as one big story. Gotcha. So, yeah, I, I had a weird way of viewing it for a lot of years until the video revolution came out there. And I actually sat down to watch the titles and remember who is in these movies. You know, that way I could actually start separating them. His stories. It's a weird way of viewing it. I get that. I'm right there with you. Putting them all together as one big saga, I think it's the best way to describe those films, at least for me. It's more fun if you think about it because it becomes a larger story. And, you know, little mistakes here and there become, you know, things that you can actually sort of mentally construct where they go. You know, why was there these unmentioned kids in the Frankenstein family, for example? Why is there no other mem- uh, members of uh, Cheney Jr.'s character's family, you know, the Talbots, uh, mentioned ever after that? It, they, it, these stories end up a bigger tale. And uh, actually, coincidentally, years later, I found uh, a friend of mine, uh, Chuck Lorian. He wrote a timeline using the monsters, not just the Universals, but Hammer and all of this. He wrote this big timeline that kind of explains how they all came out called Children of the Night, and it's just such a wonderful thing to read because if you're a monster fan like you and me, you're reading not just this, the characters of Universal, but things like even Mexican stories where there was a Dracula and a Frankenstein and why this might have come about. So you just name-dropped Mexican monster movies, Hammer films. You're definitely one of us, man. I think oh, there's no I, question. I, there. I, I'm a lifer, God, man. I, that's why I said I love uh, Monster Kid Radio, and to me, you guys are pushing the stuff that I love, that I live for, that I could I could watch it day and night and never have the, a problem, and never get tired of it. I mean, Mexican, what kind of world is it where you can get a professional wrestler who by day is fighting monsters and at night is fighting in the ring? I mean, to, to me, that was like the coolest thing when I finally understood what was going on in those movies. You ask what kind of world it's an awesome world is what it That's is. Right. It's what I want to live in. <laughs> That's right. And the funny thing is when I was in fourth grade and you just literally brought back a memory, I got to see Mil Mascaras live in my town. Oh man. Uh, yeah, we got to see him fight in a, a battle royal and then he did a uh tag team match uh, against um Mr. Fuji and uh Professor Tanaka. So to me, it was like I, my brain was thinking, oh, I wonder what monster he fought that day. It was Godzilla, you know, you know, Godzilla, maybe, or, you know, I didn't know what the heck I was thinking. But it was like, to me, I was the only one. And I said that to my father and he just said, watch the show. <laughs> That's all he said. He just like this tired voice, like, just watch them fight, Frank. Stop talking about monsters. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. <laughs> I was, I, I, you literally brought, I don't think I've thought of that story in 40 years now. So you just brought back a big memory there, man. 
Wow, that's one of the things that I love about these movies, too, is because they bring up these memories about not just the films, but where we were when we first saw the films and the circumstances in which we've indoctrinated ourselves in this love of these classic monster movies. Whether the movies are good or bad, they bring so many memories along with them, and they just kind of stick with you. Totally, totally so. I was lucky, as I said, my parents loved these movies, so every time one of them came out, especially the comic era stuff, my parents would tell me, so I get to see things like them and uh, all those amazing atomic horror movies that, uh, unfortunately, people think they're too cool for these days. But I think Godzilla this year proved that that's not true. That's true. I think there's definitely a place for giant monsters. Atomic era is what you're you're calling them. And I think it's a a great period of monster movie done with things like them, Tarantula, the Black Scorpion. What are some of your favorite giant monster movies? I named a bunch of them right there. There you go. (laughs) Uh, You did good there. I mean, Godzilla obviously will always be the one I saw first uh, along with King Kong. Them. I can watch them every day and never be bored of it. It has so many good things to it, wow. uh, such great stories to it. It came from beneath the sea. I love that one totally, the giant octopus mm-hmm. movie. Actually, the giant octopus movie had one of the funniest moments live in my life. I did a mystery science theater thing accidentally. There's a scene where the two lovers, uh, the Air Force officer or whatever he is, and the female scientists are having this romance scene on the beach. And he says, you know, in that cute, clever way, what are you doing tomorrow? And she turns away and says, going to Antarctica. So, of course, the whole audience I was with in New York started laughing. And he says this brilliant line, it's cold in Antarctica. And without meaning it, I just did this in voluntary. I said, oh, that's freaking smart. And the whole audience starts bursting out laughing. So every time there was a dumb line in the movie, the whole audience started saying, oh, that's freaking brilliant. Oh no! It <laughs> just just came out of my voice, my mouth without meaning it. Let's see, the Black Scorpion. I love that movie. I mean, oh yeah, Tarantula, of course. These these are the movies that uh, people really should sit down and watch again because I was more afraid of the ants from them than I have ever been to something like Freddy Krueger or Jason or anything like that. Because as a kid, the idea of giant ants taking over towns and stuff like that, Ooh, that was just powerful to me. And, of course, uh, you know, giant scorpions, all these creatures were just the best. So you named a bunch of them right there. And King Kong versus Godzilla, I guess, will have to be my ultimate favorite just because you could tell they were having a great time making this movie, too. There is a, a, a level or a sense of playfulness to that one. I had a chance to see that uh, theatrically a few years ago. Uh, and it was the first time I'd actually ever seen it start to finish. And it is just a fun ride the entire way through. It's a little goofy in spots, but so what? It's so much fun. That's exactly it. You know, you you can tell that that goofiness was probably just playfulness between the two actors in the suits. Mm-hmm. They were having a fun time making this kind of old-style wrestling fight between the two of them. <laughs> and uh, and at times, yeah, it was it was ridiculous, but... So what? You're having such a, an enjoyable pleasure watching this. And like I said, every year for Thanksgiving, that was my my way of uh, getting through the day. <laughs> <laughs> Again, King Kong is babysitter. You, oh, can't, you can't go wrong. <laughs> you cannot go wrong. King Kong was my babysitter for years. Uh, uh, my father probably still thinks about that, though. 
actually, but he, he was <laughs> probably up there thinking like, you know, six hours I didn't have to deal with the kid driving me up the wall. So, <laughs> <laughs> so with Jingle Scorpion, it's definitely set in the world of, of giant monsters and science fiction monsters. Where did the idea to sit down and write a story like this come from for you? It came from two sources. Obviously, it comes from the Atomic Era movies that you and I both love and so many people out there do love. But it also came from a writer named Manly Wade Wellman. Oh, yes. There you go. Manly Wade Wellman wrote a character called Silver John. He preferred calling him John the Balladeer. And John was this uh, country music singer and guitarist who was described as looking like a young Johnny Cash, who went from place to place play solving these occult horror stories and I just had a total love of it it was really something actually I got from my friend Rick Lye he, uh, he introduced me to the character in more detail I'd only heard of him and read like one or two stories and I was thinking to myself it's like you know there's a big gap here I would never try to imitate the character but I want to do my own world i want to do my own stuff and atomic era is where i live as much as i love the uh, occult and i have written occult heroes and stuff like that the atomic era sci-fi characters were just it and i thought for a while and i realized to me the most fun stuff in a lot of these movies was when the monster attacked it was usually would attack a bunch of kids playing music and that just came to me it's like you know what rockabilly musicians were out there and some of them were taught by the old blues guys too so they were good players and i invented this character who goes from place to place solving atomic era problems so i had a fun time writing it and i sent it to tommy and he loved it so you know it, got, it went from there so i got real lucky the story starts with this rockabilly this musician rolling into town what the town's called it mud flaps just a small little desert town and i write it on my kindle so it's hard to say on page one this happened, but by the time I got to the bottom of my screen, there's your big old scorpion. So you dove right into the mix, dove right into the giant monsters with this thing, and I was hooked. Well, I'm really glad to hear that. See, my view is if you're going to call a story big old scorpion, you better show the scorpion on page one. And you were right. It was on page one. I wrote, it's for Kindle, so it would be hard to know. But it was a page one thing where you – can't hint at it unless you're coming into like the ruined town and trying to figure out what happens. But that kind of sold what the story was. The story is big old scorpion. You know, it's going to be a big old scorpion. Mm -hmm. So you better show him and let it become a problem from there. Boy, was it from what I saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right off the bat, he's there. And you talked a little bit about your main character and having this kind of musician, Johnny cash kind of thing. I saw a little bit of John Agar in him. I love the guy. He's this, this, kind of pulp-like hero, but again, it's in the 50s. It's this atomic era. It's this nice blend of storytelling technique. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. That's a great compliment, Eric. I really love that you said that, because you hit every area I love. <laughs> well, this whole interview, I've been, like I said, there's a checklist. Every time you mention something, you mention Manly Made Wellman. I don't know if you heard me gasp, but it's like, oh, yeah. So 
Uh, no, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad that it's not just you know a bunch of us that know him. When you were hearing that you loved him, that makes my day. So you know, because <laughs> these are the things I don't want to disappear. So always helps to hear more people saying, "Oh God, I love that character." So that writer. I think the only thing we haven't hit yet on my checklist is Robert E. Howard, and then I'd be set. So. Oh uh, well, I love. I, <laughs> I, I will. You will hear from that before the end of the discussion. Believe me. Um, <laughs> now, uh, the character. I took a bunch of characters from uh, movies and real life. Uh, rockabilly musicians back then were just some of the most interesting characters. Eddie Cochran, uh, mm-hmm. well, you, you know, even Elvis Presley. These guys uh, like that. But I put them like through a filter, honestly, of John Acuff. I really had him mentally in mind for period for parts of this because he was in so many of those fun movies and. This character has a deep background that's hinted at at times. I don't want to reveal too much when I was writing him, but just enough that you know there could be a lot more with him. And he comes into town and sees this giant scorpion, and the and the, the great thing, it's not really revealing too much, he says, you know, call the sheriff to this guy, and the guy claims to not see a Cadillac-sized scorpion. Instead of the way you and I would react to it and say, you know, what do you mean? Your mind slap the guy in the mouth. The musician takes like a quieter view, like, okay, let's find out what's going on here. And he actually does a little mystery hunting there, which I'll be honest now that I think back to it is probably influenced more by Scooby Doo than anything else. <laughs> you know what? That's also on the checklist, so that's all right. <laughs> all right, good. there you go. I'm hitting the right numbers. He, he goes into town, and I I really tried to hit on the things that happen in these old-time movies with music and girls and bullies and cars and motorcycles and all of the things that I grew up loving and enjoying, and I hope other people did. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you, you, you got that out of it, so you made my day, Derek. <laughs> well, I the music element, too, with – that era of music, first of all, just being classic and instantly recognizable. There's also a little bit of like the Earth versus the Spider in here, where they're doing the the, the school dance in the same building where there's this giant spider that they thought was dead, you know, in there as well in the auditorium. So I mean, there's all these different elements here thrown into this blender that became the story for Big Old Scorpion. I don't want to ruin it either. I mean, we're kind of dancing around that mm-hmm. there is a larger world here and some other things going on. There's one paragraph or a couple of sentences that mentions that our character has dealt with other things before. When I was writing it, I realized that if I just keep it at just giant, the giant scorpion, it would be kind of unexplained why this guy can figure this stuff up out and react so well to the idea of a scorpion the size of a minivan. So I just sort of let my mind and body connect to the story and, when that happens, it's a great feeling for a writer, and it happens to me a lot, actually, where the story starts taking over itself. And it never goes the way I expected. I'm a lot influenced by Stephen King. For years, I tried to like um, uh, outline stories and stuff like that, and I, I could never do it, and it never ended up the way I wanted the story, or it never felt right. It felt forced. And then I read this book on writing where he wrote about his writing, and he said, this is what he does. He creates the character, the situation, the other characters around him, and he just sort of throws it in the blender and comes up with the story, and it never ends up the way he thinks it does. 
And that's exactly what happened in Big Old Scorpion. All of a sudden, I found myself writing these hints of other tales that this guy has lived through. And I was like, okay, I guess I got things to write because I didn't know I just put that down. I didn't plan any of that. It just came out. And, yep. you know, since the grandmaster of horror fiction is uh, is the one who promotes that idea as his, as his style, I don't feel actually bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I know a number of our listeners are writers. I'm a writer. And when that happens, it is a magical moment when you're writing something and the character reveals something about their past or their history or something to you that you didn't sit down with in mind when you first started typing away or writing away. That's a magical moment. So when that happened in Big Old Scorpion. I feel like we benefited a little bit because you've hinted that there might be more stories with this character down the line. Well, Tommy Hancock actually says the same thing. He says, uh, I'm coming out with a book, and we're going to talk about it probably at the end, uh, pretty soon called First Season Other Tales. And Big Old Scorpion is in there. It's a collection of short stories I wrote. Different characters, like pulp experiments, uh, different eras, different worlds, different creations. And of all of them, Tommy said... This is the one I think people are going to want. This is the one I said. I, I, he pulled it out because he said, this is the story I think people will just love the best. So between you and Tommy Hancock, you, you may be right. Uh, it's possible. And I won't hesitate to write more of this character. I had such a fun time of it. You're getting to write in a period that we all grew up watching. Some people got to live through. I didn't. I'm too young for that. But I got to live through it through the movies and TVs uh, and it's not lost. It's still out there, and there's a lot of us who love it. So Big Old Scorpion was my first start on it. I'm definitely on the side of I want to see more. <laughs> I'd love to either learn more about the stories that you kind of hinted at in Big Old Scorpion or just see more down the line. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where I will get inspiration from any place. You never know. I mean, I was writing a short story once for my very good friend and probably one of the greatest artists I've ever met and such a great writer, too, Jay Piscopo. And Jay asked me to write a char his character, Commander X, who's this real total pulp character I love. And it was supposed to be a Christmas story. And I had just literally been watching Mighty Joe Young, and I came up with this idea of apes and rocket packs. And it became uh, it, 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 it became this talking apes with rocket pack story that I wrote for him called Commander X versus the Simeon Squad. And as I'm writing it, I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, if I wasn't a writer, I'd be in, in an asylum because I'm so out of my mind. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm really I just pictured that as I was driving. And I started laughing and. Fortunately, now people talk on the phone and stuff like that, so nobody looks at each other. But if it had been when I was growing up and, you know, early driver, and somebody saw me just sitting there laughing my head off, they'd probably, you know, think, I don't want to be near that car. <laughs> <laughs> Apes and rocket packs. Sign Apes me up. I'm rocket there. packs. You see where my brain will go when I just let it go and. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not such a good thing. But Here at Monster Kid Radio, it's a great thing. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> because I had fun writing that, and I had the big old scorpion. When I wrote it, I, I think I went on Facebook. I just finished it and was about to send it out. And I said, I think I wrote something really amazing, and I never say that. I really never say that about my writing. And I just felt like I just found something really new and a 
fun and enjoyable that could go, you know, into something bigger. And well, Tommy Hancock and you agree, so I'm happy to hear it. I'm happy to hear it, believe me. So the reaction to Big Old Scorpion outside of our circles has been pretty good. Yeah, actually, uh, somebody I know who has zero interest in that world uh, and that stuff read it and just told me he just had such a fun time reading it. It was a fast story, like the kind he grew up with as a kid, you know, watching in TV and movies. So uh, I've had a really positive response from it. So it may well happen. And Tommy thinks that that'll end up the character I end up writing for him a lot. Uh, I can't argue with that if it happens. Uh, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, where I'm going to want to kill my character. If the people want to read them, I'll I'll write them if I can come up with ideas. It's all what it comes down to. There you go. You mentioned TV. It definitely has kind of like a one step beyond kind of vibe to it as well. So I mean, that's another great way to put it and another selling point for anybody who hasn't read it. It's a short read. I mean, it's a short story. You're in and out, but it's still packed full of this monster goodness. One step beyond the outer limits, Twilight mm-hmm. Zone. I mean, I still get chills uh, thinking about those and oh, to the point where I actually changed my phone's uh, ring call to the Twilight Zone music. So it's like you, you, you definitely hit the areas that I was going for when I was writing it and a lot of it was unconscious. It was just stuff inside the uh, the back of my brain that I grew up with coming out in one spot. And based on the response, I'm I'm real real happy that it came out. You know, <laughs> you never do know what you're gonna as a writer gonna produce. Some days you're gonna produce stuff that people are gonna love, and in next day you're gonna have somebody telling you, "Ugh, why did you write that?" <laughs> <laughs> well, what's coming up next for you? Is there anything that our listeners can keep an eye out for? Well, I have a book of short stories coming out called First Seas and Other Tales. Big old scorpion is in there. That's a bunch of pulp experiments I've written over the years. Uh, it's uh, by pro se uh, publishers, well, Tommy Hancock and uh, Morgan uh, Miners uh, Press. Uh, they're great people, such amazing people, and they gave me a lot of chances. It has a, a really fun pulp cover of a guy being attacked by a monster, a female monster I created, and a sea captain uh, behind them, a real big, powerful-looking guy, about to intervene and save the guy's life. So that's coming out. I have a story again for uh, Tales of the Shadowmen with Black Coat Press, which hits on another era of monsters. I finally got to write a Dennis Wheatley kind of story. Those of you who don't know, Dennis Wheatley wrote a lot of these great uh, adventure stories, but his greatest character was a character called the Duke de Richelieu, who was played by Christopher Lee in The Devil Rides Out, which is just my favorite of that era always. I could watch that movie 200 times. And oh, wow. I, I love that movie so much. It, it's such a great story. So I had this character... Uh, and it also hits on uh, another story. I actually created an origin for a character called Simon King of the Witches, one of the goofiest movies ever made. It's actually pretty intelligent and sold as a, like a Manson kind of thing because that was the era, but it really isn't like that. So I had a fun time writing that. That's coming out in December. For my good friend Jim Beard, he created a company called Flinch, I wrote a story for a character called Stardust the Super Wizard using a character by a guy named Fletcher Hanks. Fletcher Hanks was this really insane comic writer who created these 
larger than life, almost psychotic heroes who would go after the bad guys and do this real divine retribution kind of justice. Really vicious, nasty stuff. And the two craziest of his characters was a woman named Phantoma who protected this jungle and Stardust the Super Wizard who was this alien from beyond who would come to the United, to the world and fight monsters on Earth and destroy the villains in these horrible, twisted ways. So that was fun. And here we're going to the, the, the Robert E. Howard stuff now. I told you it was coming. There we go. There we go. <laughs> Here we go. For the same uh, company, for Jim, he created a series called Big Top Tales about a circus. And he let me write the knife thrower that he created. And I don't know where it came from, but I ended up writing this knife thrower involved in an adventure that was pure out of the Robert E. Howard Chinatown tales with Steve Harrison and stuff like that. It really it went right back to that era of pulp with the, the powerful adventure fighting for his life against the evil, twisted hordes of, of monsters uh, from the East. And it's kind of suggested it's not the East. <laughs> it's because I can't do that. The only person who ever sure. really puts that stuff in the proper way is my good, good friend, uh, William Patrick Maynard, who for the Sac Romer estate actually writes Fu Manchu and the stories are just fantastic that he does. Um, so that's what I have there, and I'm working on another Secret Agent X, a couple of other projects for a couple of other companies, as well as a Frankenstein novel using the French version of Frankenstein for Black Coat Press. The French version of Frankenstein, by the way, is probably the scariest version of Frankenstein ever created. It was created by a French filmmaker and screenwriter, who ended up winning an Academy Award for short subject. And he's very proud of the fact that he wrote Frankenstein stories in his early days. So I got to admire the man. So I've had, I got a busy schedule ahead of me. That plus teaching martial arts is like, you know, I'm never quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a, a place online that listeners can go to keep on top of what you've got coming out and when? Right now it's just my Facebook page, but okay. uh, it's open to the public. I don't have one of those private pages. And uh, anything that's coming up, I uh, yesterday or the night before, I don't even remember, I put out the cover of First Season Other Tales, and over 50 of my friends just hit like on it immediately, loving the, the visuals and wanting the story as fast as possible. So hopefully that'll be coming out soon. Right now, that's what it is. I do follow you on Facebook, and I saw the cover, and I mean – Sea monster, I'm there. I'm, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon is my favorite film. So anytime you get a, a green looking sea monster type, I'm on board. So I, I think I was one of the people who like. So you did, you did. <laughs> one of the great things about that is, and I am, I'm colorblind, so non visually oriented that way, is I actually came up with the idea on it based on a scene. Cause Tommy just basically said, you know, choose a scene from all these stories that you think could make a great cover. And I came up with this cover and the artist just did the perfect visualization of what I'm uh, working with. And I've only had that happen to me with two other guys, uh, Jay Piscopo, who I mentioned, who is always my favorite and Mike files, who a lot of pulp and new pulp readers know because Mike Files just does the most beautiful paintings of um, pulp curers and stuff like that. He's just an amazing British artist that I hope one day to meet personally. Jay, I actually met. We met at Comic-Con, and 
I think we spoke for two straight hours. <laughs> I have a fortunate life. I'm, I'm leading a great, I have a lot of good friends out there in the business and, you know, people are reading me. So, you know, knock wood, it keeps going. There are worse fates for a writer, I think, than to uh-huh. have people read your stuff. So, uh, Big Old Scorpion came out in August from Pro Se Press. It's an ebook. It's a short story. You can get it for your Nook. You can get it for your Kindle. You can get it for your Kindle app if you don't have an actual physical e-reader device. So you can read it on your phone or your computer or whatever. Highly recommended from Monster Kid Radio. And Frank, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with us today on the show. Real pleasure, Derek. I appreciate you having me, and uh, I hope to speak to you again soon. I mean, I love Monster Kid Radio, and I hope to keep listening to you for a long time. I'll do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Please do. There's not enough of us out there. You know, we, we need more people like you out there pushing to keep the wonderful worlds of our childhood alive. There you go. Thanks again, Frank. (laughs) My pleasure. Big thanks to Frank for taking the time to chat with us. It was kind of short notice, and he gave so generously of his time when he Skyped it up with me for the show. Frank, thank you so much. And listeners, Big Ol' Scorpion, Monster Kid Radio approves. I'm telling you, you're going to dig it. And like I said in the recording with him, you do not need a Kindle or a Nook to enjoy the story The Kindle app is available for your smartphone and your computer, so you can buy it and read it there. It's a fun read. I think you're going to dig it. Frank's also one of the members of the Facebook group, so anytime that he posts anything about a new book online, well, I certainly hope he shares it with the group here, because I think Monster Kid Radio listeners would enjoy his pulp work as well and pretty much anything else he's got coming down the line, because it's fun, fun stuff. All right, let's go ahead and get into our countdown to Lugosi Ween right now. with most of the classic movie monsters, especially the universal classic Pantheon, I first learned who Bela Lugosi was through the Crestwood House monster series. I was able to check these books out of the kids section at the local library and I was hooked on the monsters. Of course, I gravitated toward the big three of the universal monsters, Frankenstein's monster, the Wolfman, and Dracula. They had some pop culture recognition for me. Now, for some reason or other, the Frankenstein and Wolfman books did not feature Boris Karloff or Lon Chaney Jr. on their respective covers. But Dracula? Bela Lugosi was on the cover of that book, and he was mesmerizing. Now, I read that book, along with all the other Crestwood House monster books I could get my hands on. I learned the stories of the monster movies, even though it would be years before I saw any of the films themselves. I spoiled the stories for myself, just as I imagined Monster Kids before me did when they read about these movies in Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine. I memorized the names of the actors and actresses, and maybe, because it sounded so exotic, Bela Lugosi's name really stuck with me. I didn't know much more about him at that point, I just knew he was the guy who played Dracula, Igor, Frankenstein's monster, once a werewolf named Bela, and I might have known about Island of Lost Souls too, but I can't remember for sure. I remember my family going to dinner once at a restaurant somewhere, and this restaurant had old newspaper articles framed on their walls as decorations. One of those articles was an obituary for Lugosi, and it mentioned his being buried in the Dracula Cape. I read that obituary a number of times while we were at that restaurant, 
And it's a good thing, because I don't remember ever going back there. Now, as a grade school kid, I knew a little bit about Bela Lugosi. I knew a little bit about Dracula. And I showed all of that off when I finally got to see one of the classic Universal monster movies. I was playing at a friend's house, and his father called us into the living room. It was a weekend day, and some channel was showing... Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I remember seeing that animated opening title sequence, and I was hooked. I probably drove my friend Bobby and his dad a little crazy by trying to, in my mind, catch them up to speed on the movie by trying to explain everything I'd learned about the Dracula, Wolfman, and Frankenstein films in those Crestwood House books. I probably came off as a bit of an annoying know-it-all, but I don't think I turned Bobby off from monsters completely because later that year he did dress up as a vampire for Halloween. For some reason, I dressed up as a pirate. When we were going trick-or-treating, he'd tell people that he wanted to suck their blood, and I'd follow up with, don't mind him, he's just a pain in the neck. We thought we were hilarious. Getting back to it, I saw what is arguably the final movie in the original universal cycle of those classic monster movies. Sure, there were still the Creature from the Black Lagoon films, which I hadn't discovered yet outside of the Crestwood House books. But Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein was Universal's last dance for the big three, Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Wolfman. I didn't know it at the time, but I wasn't being exposed to just Dracula the Vampire but to Dracula the Mad Scientist as well. I already knew about Dracula's playing at Mad Scientist and House of Dracula, but that was John Carradine playing the Count, and I don't know if the Crestwood House book really prepped me for that. That Lugosi was playing a Mad Scientist in the film Abbott and Costello Make Frankenstein didn't really stick with me consciously, but the groundwork for my appreciation for all things Lugosi was being laid down. I'd revisit Lugosi as Scientist later. At the time... All I cared about was seeing the monsters on screen for the first time. I didn't care that the movie was in black and white. I didn't care that I hadn't seen the other films. I was just happy to be seeing the monsters that I had already kind of come to know and love thanks to those books. Oh, and I also got to see some funny guys in those movies at the same time. I got to see Lugosi turn into a vampire bat. I got to see him seduce people. I got to see him command attention just by his very presence in a scene. Now, I'm sure I appreciated the other monster movie mainstays in the movie as well. Chaney and Glenn Strange are also great in that film. But for me, it was Lugosi all the way. Now, for years, I believed all the hype about Lugosi and Karloff not getting along and always took Lugosi's side. I know that a lot of that was studio hype and exaggeration now, but to a little Derek, all I cared about was who was better, Lugosi or Karloff, and I always sided with Lugosi. I saw him first, since Karloff was an inhabitant in Castello Meet Frankenstein. It hadn't really clicked with me that I probably had already heard Karloff's voice first because of his role in the special How the Grinch Stole Christmas. As far as I was concerned, Lugosi was my first monster exposure. Lugosi was my go-to guy, my monster man. And in many ways, today, he still is. Now, an important point needs to be made here. I love Karloff and Chaney, both father and son, Carradine, Strange, all of them. Despite telling people that I'm on Team Bella, I don't really pit Lugosi against the other actors in these classic monster movies. They all bring something unique to their performances, and I always find something to enjoy in their films, Bela-less and otherwise. I gave up on really, truly arguing with people about who I thought the better actor was, Lugosi or Karloff. I mean, they were both masters. But for a young Derek in second grade, there was only one master, a man named Bella Lugosi. Those thin, orange-colored hardback books in the library primed me 
for a position on Team Bella. And Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, sealed the deal. Lugosi handled comedy, drama, and every action and reaction in between in that film. He did it deftly with charisma and flair, mystery, and magic. Dracula may have put Lou Costello under his spell in the movie, but Lugosi himself put me under his. The music that you heard in that piece was composed by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. It is the dance macabre music. It's licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0. Of course, we're going to put that in the show notes as well over at MonsterKidRadio.net. Let's dive into some feedback. This email came in from Mark Leeper. I enjoyed your episode on the Phantom of the Opera, and I think I can answer some of the questions. Now, I think he's referring to some questions that I had regarding the re-release of the original film, changing some of the title cards, that sort of thing. I was fascinated to learn that the original version of the Phantom of the Opera was re-released, but some of the title cards were changed, and some of the characters and the story itself was changed around a little bit with this re-release. It was interesting to find out that they'd been doing this sort of thing way back in the 20s and 30s. So let's hear what Mark has to say. In the late 1920s, sound was just coming into the film studios, and it was a big draw for the public. Universal decided that their timing was bad for the Phantom of the Opera. It should have been made with sound. The two nouns in the title were Phantom and Opera. The film was about the Phantom and the Opera. The public would want sound with real opera being sung. At least the music sung by Carlotta would be extended and sung with sound. But Virginia Pearson, an actress and not a singer, had played the character of Carlotta. She could not do the singing that went with her image on the screen. And they could get a real opera singer and reshoot the singing scenes, but they could not dub her voice with late 1920s technology. Okay, they had to reshoot the scenes in which La Colada sings with a real opera singer, but La Colada is seen in other scenes in which she interacts with other characters. All of those would have to be reshot with those actors replaced. Soon, they would have to just reshoot the entire film. Instead, they decided the character of Carlotta would be seen only on the stage. In scenes where the original actress interacts with people offstage, that character would be explained in the title cards as La Colada's mother. So the character one sees as La Colada's mother in the 1929 version was the original La Colada in the 1925 version. When you see a scene with La Colada's mother, you are seeing a scene from the 1925 version in which the actress thought she was playing La Colada herself. I believe they also put in more comedy at some point with comic actor Snitz Edwards. The mysterious character of the Persian appears in the book in the Lon Chaney versions of the film only. I think in the film he was called Ledoux. In the Andrew Lloyd Webber film, his character has been combined with that of Madame Geary. Late in the production of the original stage opening of the Andrew Lloyd Webber play, Michael Crawford, who played the Phantom, lodged a complaint. He had to sing an act through a mask that covered most of his face. He could not sing or emote very well at all through the mask. The art people were told that they had to redesign a mask that would cover as little of the Phantom's face as possible. They decided to make it as small a mask as they could get away with and have it cover only half of the Phantom's face. That is a contradiction because the point of the mask was to hide his face. They came up with a half-face mask. However, it was too late to change the look of the mask on the poster art. If you look at the early poster art, the mask is symmetrical, but in the performances it was definitely asymmetrical. He also included a link to his survey of all the major Phantom of the Opera adaptations. That's leapers, L-E-E-P-E-R-S dot U-S slash phantoms dot H-T-M. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes. So go check that out. The article is Phantoms of the Opera, 
A Survey of Adaptations by Mark R. Leeper. Mark, thank you for writing in and sharing that information with us. The Phantom of the Opera film, it's fascinating to me. I love the version that I have on Blu-ray. It's the Kino release, and I believe it is the 1929 version of the film, so some of the title cards are a little different. I wouldn't have even been made aware of the difference in the title cards if it wasn't mentioned up in the audio commentary on that excellent Blu-ray. It is interesting to think about, especially since this is an era in which these movies are not being shown on TV. There's no videotape. There's no DVD or anything like that. It's not being shown on regular television. So audience members may see the same movie four years later and not remember or have an immediate frame of reference for what they saw before. I don't know. It's just totally fascinating to me. I mean, and if you want to take that a step further, in the 1950s, there was a movie called Hollywood Story directed by William Castle starring Julie Adams, who of course I know about the film. And in the film, she's an actress and she goes to watch The Phantom of the Opera. But in the film, they're saying The Phantom was directed by somebody completely different. I don't even talk about the original filmmakers in that. They just kind of work it into the story. And again, 1950s, people aren't watching Phantom of the Opera. They aren't familiar with the original film. So it's not like anybody could really call them on it in the audience. Fascinating stuff. I have another email. This one came in from Court from Omaha. I was listening to episode 134, the episode where you speak with your mother about your history as a monster kid. I found this episode to be an excellent change of pace and quite heartwarming as well. I think that those of us in the second wave of monster kids have many great stories like this, and it's really great to know you had at least one parent that was supportive in all of your fan endeavors as a budding monster kid. I find so much of the topics you cover on the show echo some of my own experiences in life as I grew up monster crazy too. But the conversation in episode 134 was great, and I found it very touching as I had said. I'm loving every episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks for doing such a consistently great podcast. Long live Monster Kids. Court from Omaha. Court, I shared this email with my mother, and she finally listened to the episode. She didn't listen to it right away. She said she enjoyed it, and she appreciated that I didn't make her sound, to use her words, dorky. I think I came across a little bit more dorky than she did in the conversation. Now, when I talked to my mother last night, in fact, we talked about that episode and she mentioned a couple of things that we didn't even get a chance to talk about when we were recording. So I told her to sit on it and we'll talk about it next time we're together that I'm either visiting there or she's visiting here. I'll get her in front of the mic again. So thank you for listening and thanks for your support. I appreciate all the kind words. Hey, Derek, Steve Sullivan here, author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, and all sorts of other stuff. Hey, speaking of Daikaiju Attack, thanks for playing the promos. I really appreciate it. Every week I mean to call you and then I don't get to it right away, and then suddenly there's another episode, and I think, oh, I should call about that one now. This happens, like, every week. But this week, I'm actually going to manage to call, even if I'm kind of between shows and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, your silent stuff, talking about Lon Chaney Sr. and The Phantom of the Opera. What a great film that is. And I have to say, having seen a, a number of his films, I think that Lon Chaney Sr. is not just the greatest makeup artist the man of a thousand faces of the silent era. I think he is quite probably the best silent movie actor of all time. The only performance I've seen that equals his best performances is uh, Maria Falconetti in the, uh, in the Joan of Arc film, which is so amazing. But every film, Cheney is pouring his heart out onto the screen and the level of craft he reached, it was just amazing. If someone thinks they know of a better all-around silent screen actor, I want to hear about that person because I think he's it. You know, even though he's playing these weirdos and freaks in almost every one of his movies, 
he brings such pathos and such depth to the work he does. It's astonishing. I haven't seen him in anything where I thought he was bad. In fact, he's great in everything I've seen. So check them all out. They're all worth doing. Uh, we were talking about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and that was a huge movie for me when I was a kid. I totally loved that film. Saw it in probably 71 or 2 in a revival on a drive-in screen, and my brother and I went home and we made little... Uh, Little plastic submarines out of, uh, out of laundry detergent bottles that were suitable and, uh, took our toys out and, and, uh, did, uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea stuff with them out in the pond and, uh, lost some of the toys and then, that's another story. We had a great time. It was a great film. Uh, James Mason is awesome. You were talking about them having considered Gregory Peck for maybe playing that part and you were wondering what that would be like. Well, I think we know what that would be like. It would be like his Captain Ahab and Moby Dick. And as much as I love Greg Peck, and I do love Greg Peck, and his uh, his Ahab is good, I think James Mason is a much better choice for this role. He's just, he's awesome. I mean, I wanted to be Captain Nemo. Yeah, he's kind of a bad guy, but he's not really a bad guy. He's an anti-hero, and he just plays it perfectly. I think he's wonderful. Uh, he was also great in Journey to the Center of the Earth, which means he is been the main character in probably my two favorite Jules Verne adaptations. Just awesome in both of those. I rode on the Nautilus at least twice when it was in Disney World. It was my favorite ride because I loved the movie so much. And the uh, it didn't really go underwater, but it made it look like you went underwater. And seeing these Nautilus ships floating around the lagoon at the beginning was awesome. Somewhere I have 8mm home movies of that. Uh, I'm sure they're not very good, but at least there's some record. I wish it was still there. Uh, finally, if you're going to do more silence, I'm totally up for either Metropolis or The Lost World. Metropolis is one of my favorite films of all time, and if you have not seen the restored edition, you should. Well, keep up the great work. Love the show, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, so Steve mentioned a couple of things, a lot to cover. First off, Lon Chaney, man, the man was a genius. And I think I said this before. If I didn't say it before, I want to say it again. The man was ahead of his time. He knew how to work the camera. He knew what to give the camera when to make his performances solid and to really give the audience the best possible performance and believability that his characters required for the kinds of stories that he was telling. I mean, he's known for the monstrous, the phantom, the hunchback. He's known for all of that. But strip away the makeup. The man's still charismatic. The man still knows how to work the camera. And that's mind-blowing. That's genius in a time in which film is still in its infancy. To be able to figure that out and work that to his advantage... Yeah, I would agree. He is one of the masters, if not the master. Although you did mention Maria Falconetti from The Passion of Joan of Arc. That's a 1928 silent film that my wife and I watched a while back. It turned up on TCM, I think. We were flipping through channels and there it was and we were captivated by that film. That's a silent film, a telling of the Joan of Arc story. She is amazing in that film. It stands out as a unique silent film because none of the performers are wearing makeup, which is very rare for that time. On top of that, if you consider that this film, for the most part, is made up of cuts and versions of the scenes that the director originally rejected... Wow. I mean, that's amazing to me. What I mean is that the original cut of the film was destroyed at some point. So the director 
wasn't able to go back to reshoot. What they did is they went and took all the stuff, all the different takes that he didn't want to use before and made a movie out of that. Amazing. And it's a great film. Highly recommend it. Not really Monster Kid Radio stuff. I mean, it's not a monster movie, but in terms of silent films, it's amazing. Lon Chaney brought his A-game to everything that he did. He's amazing. He's captivating. And I agree with you, Steve. I'd put him right there at the top. One of the best, if not the best, silent film actor. Although... I'm really starting to like Conrad Veidt. Don't know. I don't know who would win in that fight, but just saying. As far as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, somebody else brought up on Facebook as well the connection or the possibility that Peck being considered for Captain Nemo may have somehow led to his getting involved in Moby Dick. I don't know the story, if there is a story there. I do like that version of Moby Dick, and I do like Gregory Peck, but I'm with you. James Mason embodies Nemo in this film. And, you know, we talked about him being the bad guy or whatever, but you're right. He's an anti-hero. He's not really a villain. There's a depth to his character. Captain Nemo is a man of many layers. This is not a black and white type film where you've got the good guys and the bad guys. You've got Nemo right in the middle. What he's doing, he's doing for what he considers to be very good reasons. Now, he's set himself up in a position to where he feels he is the one who can make the decision between what's good and what's bad. But, you know, again, anti-hero style type character here. Mason as Nemo is amazing in this. I do want to do more silent films here on the show. Originally, I was going to do nothing but silent films in September. That didn't quite work out. I had a number of things happen that prevented me from really planning this out and making this happen the way that I wanted it to. However, that just means we're going to pepper in more silent films as we go. I want to talk about Metropolis. I want to talk about The Gollum. I love The Gollum. That's one of my favorite silent films. And I want to give it some attention here. Metropolis, definitely need to give that one some attention as well. It's a classic. It was Forey Ackerman's favorite film. So, of course, we got to talk about it here on Monster Kid Radio. And finally, you thank me for playing your promo for Daikaiju Attacks? Happy to do it. In fact, why don't we just do it again right now? From a world beyond our own come the forces of nature unleashed. Daikaiju Attack. The serialized giant monster story, presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. This upcoming weekend is the Monster Kid Radio Crash Double feature. Let's call it a double feature. Friday night, we're going to be at the Hollywood Theater here in Portland, Oregon, kicking off October in the best way possible, watching a classic Universal monster movie. Friday night, 8.45 p.m. is showtime for a 35-millimeter print of The Wolfman. Now, there is a Facebook event already set up. So if you're a Facebook user, just look us up over there and let us know if you're going to be there, that sort of thing. I will be there. I will probably be wearing a Hawaiian shirt and I will have a recorder on hand. So if you've never seen me or met me in person and you do see me there, please feel free to come up, introduce yourself to me. We'll chat it up. I'm going to record a little bit before the show, record a little bit after the show. I think Chris McMillan's going to be there. We've got a maybe from Devin Devereaux, and a few other people have committed on Facebook to being there. I hope to see everybody there, and I hope everybody has a good time. Now, if that's not enough, the Hollywood Theater is showing The Bride of Frankenstein as well, off and on, over the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 
And they're also showing Dracula's Daughter, which Monster Kid Radio is going to crash as well, Saturday at 3.30 p.m. at the Hollywood Theater. Now, this is a matinee show, so ticket prices are a little cheaper. This is also a 35-millimeter print. Dracula's Daughter, I feel, doesn't get enough attention. It is a little off the beaten path when you look at some of the earlier classic monster movies from Universal, but it's still a fascinating film, and I can't wait to see it on the big screen. 35mm style, same thing. Look for me. I'll have a recorder. We'll chat it up. However, I don't think I'll be wearing a Hawaiian shirt that day. That day, I'll be wearing a black t-shirt celebrating two things that I love. Creature from the Black Lagoon and Cthulhu. And I bring that up because that evening at the Hollywood is the best of H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival one night only event at the Hollywood. I'm going to be there for that as well. Not really a classic monster thing, but you know, gotta love my Lovecraft. Next week on Monster Kid Radio, I think we'll probably bring you some recordings from the Monster Kid Radio crashes, so stay tuned for that. Come back here, monsterkidradio.net, iTunes, wherever it is you listen to podcasts. Hope to see you, or talk to you, next week on the show. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Agent Graves. That appears on this podcast, courtesy of the band, the Beeritz Boys. It's on their album. Enjoy the hip, slick, ultra-violent, and super-sexy surf sound of the Beeritz Boys. It's on this podcast with their permission. Check them out, and if you buy the album, let them know Monster Kid Radio sent you. I'll talk to some of you at the Hollywood Theater for the Monster Kid Radio Crash and the rest of you next week here on the show.